Please open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can reach into the pew rack in front of you and you'll find a Bible there. Page number should be in your bulletin. Would be helpful for you so you could follow along with the text of Scripture that we're going to be looking at in detail here this morning. So much can be said, really, as we uh, begin our study again of this, and it's one of those passages where each and every rabbit trail is just begging you to go down and to explore it, so I will endeavor to be as careful in my exposition this morning as I can to make sure that we really focus in on what the author intended us to focus on. Each one of the Gospels was written by a different individual, and they had a purpose and a plan in what they were doing. And under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, some authors included certain accounts in Jesus' life and others did not. And whatever they wrote in and whatever they didn't write in was intentional. So it's not like they had forgotten something or they had gotten it wrong. It's that they intentionally focused in on certain aspects of our Lord's life, and that's why we're going to stay on track with that through the Gospel of Matthew, rather than trying to pull in everything from all the other Gospels. We also know that uh, these Gospels were written in such a way that they were constructed so as to let you know what the author was thinking about when he delivered certain accounts. And that's why in our Scripture reading so far, we have been taking rather long sections in order to make sure you have the entire argument that he's making. Over in chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see it begins with the statement from John the Baptist regarding Christ, and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3 and verse 2. And then at the end of this section here in chapter 4, we get to verse 17, where now Jesus picks up that very mantle and preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent was to turn. It was to turn from that which you were putting your faith in to save you and turning to Christ. Repentance is one of the things that happens upon one's regeneration when that heart of stone that you were born with is replaced with a heart of flesh when you are given new life, uh, when you suddenly become a spiritual being able to exercise the faith that has been given to you as a gift, and it manifests itself in repentance and belief. It manifests itself in moving forward with faith and believing the gospel and then bearing fruit to the glory of God. Well, one of the things that we're going to look at this morning is right in the middle between those two testimonies about repentance and faith is a test of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We saw last week that when He went into the wilderness, being sent there by the Spirit, that it was for the purpose of being tested. It means that what had happened previously had to be tested. And what had happened previously was the declaration in His baptism that He was going to fulfill all righteousness. That by being baptized, he was, as it were, standing in line with sinners, going through the process that sinners were going through, even though he himself had no sin. He was essentially coming not only to pay their debt in full, but to do their works as well. 
And as we'll see here today in very, very clear detail, that is exactly what he is going to prove he is doing when the tempter comes to derail him. But just remember, he was there in his baptism, allowing himself to be baptized by John the Baptist, even though John the Baptist knew full well that the baptism Jesus was bringing with his ministry was far superior and actually completely different. And the only baptism that really mattered was being baptized into Christ. But Jesus says, no, in this particular case, let it happen because I need to fulfill all the righteousness on behalf of those whom I've come to save. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I need you to realize that if you're in Christ, you have had a great, perfect, merciful high priest go before you and obey in every area where you have failed. Mission accomplished. He has already done it. And it is that perfect righteousness that he drapes over you when you are converted and put your faith in him. It is the righteousness that will be looked at before the throne one day. And it's the only righteousness that matters. So if you're here today and you wrestle with your continual failure in the face of temptation, I want you to hold in tension these two realities. Number one, you must repent and grieve. You must hate sin and do everything you can by the power of the Spirit to kill it. You must acknowledge it for what it is and never downplay it. You must see the grievous evil that it is and how your heart, even though you might be born again, is still so inclined toward it. But at the same time, to see that as a child of God that it has been forgiven and that your merciful high priest stands now in glory to intercede for you before the judgment seat of God, declaring a righteousness on your behalf that you could never earn. And the reason that's possible is because the one who came to make perfect the path where the first Adam failed is Jesus Christ, and every part of his ministry was tested and tried and found faithful. If you haven't yet already, turn your attention to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. What I'd like to show you this morning is that the Messiah is tested to prove his righteousness. The Messiah is tested to prove his righteousness. Now, there are five particular ways that we can look at this, and I would suggest that this is going to be a helpful way to get the point of the text into our minds. And so, let me give them to you up front. I want you to see five observations. Five observations about the temptation of Jesus Christ. Number one, he was sent by the Spirit. Uh, this was not a random act. This was not a surprise. This was not something that just happened. This was an intentional act. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, actively involved, visible at his baptism, anointing him in his ministry, and then moving him into the place of testing in order to be proven faithful. Secondly, he was faithful to the Father. You will notice that in his responses that it is always in faithfulness and in trust to the heavenly Father. He came to do his Father's will. He was a perfect son. Thirdly, the obedience to the Word. 
that whenever he responds to this temptation, it is with Scripture. That's the foundation. That's also the power. That's also clearly defining what it is that he wants even the devil and us to know. Fourth, he was victorious over the devil. He has, in his own divine power and ability, the right and the authority to declare that perhaps the most powerful and glorious creature ever created will be dismissed from his presence simply upon his decree. And then finally, he is ministered to by the angels. It is the fact that throughout his earthly ministry, the myriad upon myriad of angels that were created for the purpose of glorifying and serving God are at work in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Before we even get into this text, let's just make sure we understand something. Because this, believe it or not, dawned on me even for the first time this week. So if this has never dawned on you before, then I was going to say you're in good company. You're just in my company. but I don't know if it's good or not. Um, You know, how did Matthew know this happened? How did the other gospel writers know this happened? They weren't there. Do you realize that at some point in his earthly ministry, Jesus revealed to the disciples what had happened to him? He had to tell them about what happened. This was not only an event where the devil himself goes in with everything he has and hurls it at the Son of God in order to make him fail, just like the first Adam. But it was done in isolation. It was done in a physical isolation, meaning he was out in the wilderness where there was nothing. But it was also done in such isolation that it was only Jesus Christ and Satan. It was only these two arch rivals. That nobody else was witnessing it and hearing what was going on. Jesus, at some point, had to go and he had to reveal to his disciples all that he had been through in order to have his own righteousness tested and how he stood the test every time. How he came back at at Satan with Scripture. How he, in the end, dismissed him. How he was ministered to by the angels. This entire account, yes, it's here in Matthew, but let's be clear, Matthew was not an eyewitness to what's going on here. No one was an eyewitness to what's going on here except Christ himself. And this just shows the heightened sense of awareness that Jesus had as he goes into this temptation. He knows full well what is happening. He is under complete control of his faculties. He is in complete dependence upon the Lord. He is remembering what is going on here. And he is then delivering it to his disciples so that they could bless the church with this account that would just all the more strengthen our understanding of the perfect, finished work of Christ. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. Let's take a look at exactly what is said here so that we understand it. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I trust you'll see in the economy of words here how simple it is that Matthew is making this for us. In just one sentence, he gives us everything that we need to know about the scene 
We have the main character who is Jesus. We have the motivation for what's happening, meaning the Spirit's will. We have the location where it is going on, and we have the other character, the devil, and the reason why he's there, which is to tempt Jesus. Once again, I would draw your attention to the fact that it was Jesus who was led up, and I think we could translate that with a bit more intensity. It means to be driven out. It means to be pushed out, to be thrown out, as it were, into the wilderness. And the wilderness there was not just an area that was on the outskirts of town where there was no population. It was a place that was known for being one of the most hostile regions in in all of Israel. There was nothing out there. There was no water. There was no food. There was no plants or anything that would be of sustenance for you. There were wild animals, it says, and those wild animals would roam around in some point of starvation, eating whatever they can, scavenging. It was a place that was desolate and ominous. It was a place that could kill you simply because of the environment that it was. And it was into that place that our Savior was driven And he was driven there by the Holy Spirit, and there was a purpose for it, and there was a tempter in it. Let's talk about the purpose. The purpose, it says, is to be tempted or to be tested. If you remember back to our study in the book of James, we said that that word is really a word that can be translated either way depending on the circumstances. Now, we know from Scripture that God never tempts any of us. God never puts something before us in order to entice us to sin. He will not do that to us. If anything comes before us by his permission that would otherwise entice us to sin, it is because he has allowed us to be tested. But the one who brings that before us with the effort to make us fall is not God. It is always Satan. It is Satan who comes with an effort to make us sin. Can you think back this week to a time when you sinned? Can you think back to a time when you did something that you knew was wrong or that was very clearly wrong once you did it, a time where you indulged in a sin that you were enticed to, a time where you fell, a time where you stumbled, a time where you deliberately did something that you knew dishonored the Lord. You chose to sin. You sinned in something that you thought. You sinned in something that you said. You sinned in something that you did. You actually succumbed to the temptation and you acted out something that you thought would gratify your flesh. And for a moment, it did. But then immediately after, you were probably convicted by the fact that what you did was a sin against God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ never had that thought. Jesus Christ, being perfectly without sin, never had that thought that what I have just done is wrong. I have failed. I have fallen. And because he never had that thought, because he never had that experience, it means that he did experience the temptation far beyond anything that you or I could endure because you and I would cave in. We would break long before he could. Now, this is obviously a doctrine of the second person of the Trinity that's very difficult to understand. And I don't pretend to just understand it and say it to you in some simple way. It's something that we have to wrestle with and we have to believe, take in faith, but we have to believe that because of the very nature of Christ, being God himself, truly God, he was not able to sin. And yet, because he is truly man, he felt the full intensity 
of everything that Satan could bring upon a man to make him fall, but with the inability to fall. So far be it from us to ever say, well, Jesus doesn't know what I'm going through. He can't relate to what I'm suffering. He doesn't know what it's like to experience the intense temptation that caused me to fall. Brothers and sisters, he does. The difference is he endured it, and he succeeded and never fell. This was intended by the Holy Spirit to prove him. And he used this particular method of a test from God that became a temptation from the devil to prove that as truly God he could never sin, but as truly man he could receive from Satan himself the ultimate degree of temptation that would otherwise destroy any normal human being's capacity to resist. Allow the weight of that just to sink in. Total agreement within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in unison with one intention, and that is to prove the faithfulness of the Son, that He is going to fulfill all righteousness, and it doesn't end with this temptation. He will then, for the rest of His earthly ministry, be fulfilling all righteousness, having been proven that no matter what the devil brings to Him, between that point and the cross, including the cross, would not be strong enough to break Him. What you're seeing here is the proof that nothing in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew that we're going to talk about in terms of the temptations and trials that came upon Jesus Christ was able to break him. What happened here in the wilderness proved to everybody that he couldn't be broken, which meant he spent the rest of his earthly ministry confident in the power of the Holy Spirit, confident in his divine attribute of holiness, but also aware that it would be everything at the highest possible level thrown upon him between now and the end. Just because Satan departed here at the end of this account doesn't mean he didn't return. We know from the other accounts it says he just departed and waited for an opportune time because he'd be back. So the first thing we see is that he was sent by the Spirit. Secondly, please notice that he is faithful to the Father. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That might seem like a rather unnecessary statement. We both know, we all know what it is like to be hungry. We feel hunger every single day. Some of us are hungry already, and we already ate this morning. Some of us seem to be in a perpetual state of hunger. Some of you have raised teenagers. Seems like no matter what, how you doing, their only response is hungry. Jesus here is a normal human being, truly man, able to be hungry. And yes, he experienced regular hunger pains like all of us day to day. But this is 40 days, 40 nights without food. He is reaching not only the point of being incredibly hungry, but the point where the human body begins to break down for lack of food. There is no way to describe him except at his absolute weakest. He is a human being with a human nature. And that human nature was just like yours and mine in this respect. Please listen carefully. In this respect, just like yours and mine, in that he could feel and know the weakness of the flesh. He knew hunger. He knew exhaustion and thirst. He knew what it meant for the body 
to have these deep physical needs. There are accounts where he is so exhausted that when he lays down his head, he will sleep through a storm. It was real. He wasn't pretending. Not to be glib or funny about it, but sometimes I think we maybe believe that even as an infant, he was somehow pretending to be an infant. Like, like, like the incarnation and his birth, and he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, and, and it's almost like we're thinking he's, he's lying there wrapped in swaddling clothes, thinking, I wonder how long I'm going to have to pretend to be a baby. No, he was a real baby. And he really learned and he really grew. He really couldn't walk and talk when he was born. In that human nature, he had to learn these things and grow just like all the rest of us. And so when you see him here after 40 days without food, he is at the very breaking point. 40 days, 40 nights, and he is hungry. And the tempter, because he hates Christ, comes at him when he is at his weakest. But what you'll see is that he is absolutely faithful to his Father in everything. His response was always in faith. That brings us to our third observation. Let's take a look at the exchange beginning in verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Let's just be sensible in our thinking for a moment. This was not a suggestion that he was not the Son of God. The devil is not saying there's doubt as to whether or not you really are God's Son. He isn't saying that. He is saying, since you are the Son of God, do this. At the risk of making a parallel here that is so different that it's almost not appropriate, but in at least some small way we can relate to that. We can't relate to the intensity of this temptation. We can't relate to the, the glory of being the Son of God and the entitlement that comes with that. But we do know what it is like to have a certain sense of justifiable entitlement, uh, of saying that there's something to, to which I, I, I am entitled. There's something that I deserve. There's something that's appropriate. It's certainly appropriate to eat. Uh, we are made as human beings that must eat food. And so you look at that and you say, there's nothing wrong with this. There's no sin here. But now amplify that out when you're the actual Son of God, the, the one who has been made known to be anointed by the Spirit. The Father comes in and bursts forth from the heavens saying, in you I am well pleased. He is the great prophet, the great priest, the king, the very Son of God. And the devil says, since you're the Son of God, why are you starving? This doesn't really make sense, does it? And what he's appealing to is totally logical. And not only is he appealing to him in something that is completely logical, but he is offering him something that isn't sinful. Many commentators have said this, and you've probably heard it in all the many sermons on this passage that you've listened to, but there was in that region where there wasn't much water, there wasn't many plants, there were certainly plenty of stones. There was an old saying that when God created the world, it was an old rabbi who said this, so when God created the world, he put almost all the stones in Israel. There are stones everywhere, and, and as you walk around, there are these little round stones, and they really did look like little loaves of bread. And, and so you can just imagine the devil pointing to that and saying, since you're the son of God, 
don't you just make one of those into a loaf? You're starving. I can tell just by looking at you. It's the nature of the temptation. Isn't a temptation even harder to resist when you sense a certain degree of entitlement and what you want isn't a sin? Isn't a temptation even worse when you sense an entitlement and you don't think it's a sin? What Jesus did here is he reveals that the sin, besides obeying the devil, (laughs) would not have been about turning the stones into bread. It would be about demonstrating a lack of trust in his Father. And I want you to please notice the response that he gives. Verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What I would like to do is turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And what we want to see here, just for a moment, is where this comes from. I mean, I could give you the cross-reference, and that would be interesting, but what you really need to understand is the context. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, just to give you a little bit of um, immediate context, Deuteronomy, that book means the second law, the second giving of the law. The first giving of the law was in the wilderness when Moses gives it to the children of Israel, and they break the law. They disobey God. And so you'll remember, they then went around for 40 years wandering. They didn't wander, by the way, every day. They set up tents. They were sort of camping in the wilderness, and they'd be there sometimes for quite a long time, and then they would pick up camp, and they'd move somewhere else. And after 40 years of wandering, before they go into the promised land, before Joshua and Caleb lead the forces in to take the land promised to them by God, before Moses up on the mountain actually dies, there is a delivery of the law one more time and he assembles the people in and he he gathers them around the mountain and he gives the law a second time. And what you have in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is the context of what Jesus quotes. And the reason why this is so important is because this is the part where Moses demands that the people obey God's law and they say they will. This is the part where Moses demands that the people obey God's law and they say they will. So, I'll read this quickly, but listen. Chapter 8, the whole commandment that I commanded you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that Yahweh swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whatever you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, meaning this was a new thing, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. That's the context. The context is the people are now once again going to have an opportunity to take the land. God says, for 40 years I disciplined you. I allowed you to know hunger, and then I provided for you miraculously. You see, I did both. I let you know hunger... And I provided for you miraculously. What does that mean? That means that to be humbled is to trust God in the 
trials that come and to trust God that He will make a way. This type of trial, this type of humbling is meant to produce both. And what we would see if we were to read the rest of this chapter and the rest of Deuteronomy is that the people, again, repeatedly failed. They failed to remember and trust God, and they failed to be humbled and to put their dependence in Him. Jesus came to be the one who fulfilled every single law that they broke. So He responds with these words to demonstrate His understanding and to demonstrate His willingness to be everything they were not. So He says, to be reminded, Man shall not live by bread alone and bringing in all of that context, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That was the first temptation. That was the first way in which he's obedient to the word. The second one is this. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. The language here is very specific in Matthew. Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him. He took him to a particular place. It says that he set him there. This leads me to believe that in some way and by God's permission, the devil took Jesus in the flesh, it would appear, to the very pinnacle of the Temple Mount and set him there, stood him there, stood him at the very highest point in Herod's great temple complex that had been built partially to appease the Jews. At the very highest point of that Temple Mount, overlooking the cliff leading down to the valley below, hundreds and hundreds of feet below, this sheer drop And he brings him up there and he has him look over that edge. And then he says that to him, why don't you throw yourself over and prove that what was written there in Psalm 91 is true and that God really will, through his angels, protect you? Why not do that? What was he asking him to do? Was there some sort of a special reward that Satan would get from watching God deliver, deliver Jesus from imminent death. No, it was a way for Satan to test Christ's faithfulness to his father. You see, his father said to him that I will protect you. His father said to him that I will provide for you. His father said to him, I will make sure that in your earthly ministry, you never at any single moment are taken too early or for a purpose other than why you were sent. Without getting into all the examples, just allow yourself to think back as you've read the Gospels how many times Jesus seems to be at a place where he was going to be killed by an angry mob and then all of a sudden he's able to get away. Why is that? Because at every step along the way, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together working out the perfect plan of the work of Jesus Christ on this earth to fulfill all righteousness. At every step along the way, they were saying, no, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, it's not time yet. Jesus says to his mother when she asked him to make the water into wine or to do something about the lack of wine at the wedding, he said, it's not my time yet. Jesus knew that it would be his time eventually to go to the cross. 
And so when Satan brings him up there and says, throw yourself off and and prove yourself early, Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let you twist Scripture to somehow suggest that I can do something that's not ready yet to happen. And so he responds with this in response to that temptation. Jesus said to him, verse 7, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This comes from Deuteronomy as well. If you have your finger still in Deuteronomy, you can flip back there and take a look if you'd like. If not, you can just listen. He gives here the greatest commandment, it is called. I'm just going to allow us to take a look at the first introductory section of Deuteronomy chapter 6, because again, the context matters. The context, everybody, is very important. When Jesus quotes this, he knows that the devil knows his Bible. The devil knows the Bible better than any of us. The devil's read the Bible. The devil knows what's coming. The devil even knows what's coming for him. And so when he quotes Scripture, he knows that Satan would already know this and know the context of it. But just allow your eyes to scan this. Chapter 6 and verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear Yahweh your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that the days of your life might be long. He says, I want you to understand this because it is going to be the guide for you for your entire lives in the land of Canaan that I am promising to give you. You are to trust God. You are to demonstrate your confidence in his ability to look after you and save you and preserve you. You're not to test him by going after false gods. You're not to forget him by just enjoying all the luxury and the ease of life that I'm going to give you there. He says to them over and over again that you must obey the Lord your God. And in so doing, there will be this covenant, this reciprocal blessing that comes from obedience. Isn't it interesting to see that because they failed to do that the first time, they wandered for 40 years, and because they failed to do that the second time, they were taken into captivity. The northern tribes never to come back, the southern tribes to come back about 580 years before Christ. You see, God is faithful to keep his promise. And when his people do not obey him, they incur the judgment and the discipline that he said would come. Jesus is saying, I am not going to fail where they failed. Back to Matthew chapter 4. So Jesus responds once again to Satan by saying, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Far be it from me to jump off the pinnacle of this temple in order to test God that he would somehow protect me and allow me to land softly in order that everybody would look at me and identify me as the Messiah. It's not my time yet. The time will come. It's just not now. Third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I confess to you again that I'm reading this the same way you are. It says the devil took him. It seems very specific took him to a very high mountain. We don't know what mountain. It says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. You say, do you mean all the kingdoms of the world at that time? Or all the kingdoms of the world that would ever be? And and again, kind of like last week, I, I don't know. Whatever he showed him, he showed him all of them, and they were kingdoms 
and they were in their glory. So whatever he showed him must have been absolutely spectacular. These days, when you buy one of those gigantic TVs that have the, uh, the amazing uh, resolution, when you go into the stores where they sell them, they're all showing you something on the TV. You don't just walk into a store with a bunch of blank televisions. And in most of them, they are showing you either landscapes or they're showing you great cities. Uh, they're showing you drone footage of the greatest cities in the world, often at night, and they're all lit up. And I don't know about you, but if I'm in a store like that, I'm sitting in front of one of those TVs, I'm just mesmerized by it. I'm like, I could watch this for hours. It's like having a a billion-dollar view from some penthouse apartment looking down, and it's so real and so vivid, it's almost like you're there. Well, that would pale in comparison to what's going on here, but maybe it gives us some idea. The devil takes Christ, and he, and he shows him the glory of all of the kingdoms and all of their wealth and all of their splendor. And he says, I'll give it all to you. And what a presumptuous thing to say. You go, how would the devil be able to do that? Well, I believe that Scripture teaches us that he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the one cast down to earth. He is the, the ruler of this present evil age. That to whatever degree he has been granted authority, he reigns and he rules through his angelic forces and the forces of darkness and the sons of disobedience to dominate and to control and to set the course of this present age and this world. Now, he does not operate independently. He does not operate autonomously. And he does not operate sovereignly. He doesn't get to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, as much as he wants. It is all under the ultimate authority of God. But he certainly has power. And it could very well be that he understood himself to actually have the authority to give these to Christ. And this would have been an opportunity for Jesus to obtain that which the Father promised to give him anyway, but to bypass the cross. These are the kingdoms of the world that the Father has already given to him, has already promised to him. And yet this would be a way to obtain them all to manifest his rule, his reign over the earth without having to go through the humiliation of the cross. And so the devil throws it out and says, I'll just give it to you. All you need to do is bow down and worship me. It's difficult to even say those words, isn't it? All of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Bear with me a little bit of sanctified speculation here. I wonder sometimes when Satan is sent to do the work that he does that proves the faithfulness of the people of God, I wonder sometimes if he is made to say some things that he doesn't want to say. At the end of the account of Job, for example, you wonder, did he even want to go and do this knowing that it would just prove humiliating to him? Did he really want to go here and to deal with the second person of the Trinity whom he knew in his holiness? 
Did he really want to say what just came out of his mouth? Or was that extracted from him? Was it squeezed out of him, as it were, from the, 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 the circumstances that they were going through? Did he blow his cover? Did he say something he didn't mean to say? Did he lose his cool for a minute? Or did he just choose to voluntarily disclose his real intentions? Brothers and sisters, look back at what he says. He is asking Jesus Christ to worship Satan. It may be that for our benefit, that was revealed so that you and I remember that the next time we're enticed to sin. The next time we think about choosing sin, may we be reminded that essentially we are saying no to obeying God and yes to obeying Satan. And I don't want to take that further than that, but it could be taking our eyes off of God in the pure worship of Him, and if not intentionally, then eventually transferring our worship and our attention and putting first in our lives the ministry of Satan, not the ministry of Christ. Believers are able to be drawn, even believers, deep into patterns of unrepentant sin. I don't believe any of them will ever be lost in the end. Oh, God in His faithfulness will preserve us. He will rescue us. But there is plenty of evidence that even a Christian has the capacity in their residual fallen nature and in the cursed flesh in which we still live until we're released from it one day, to intentionally, consistently, and for a considerable duration, put ourselves under the satisfying of the flesh. Now, I would hasten to add here that this passage of Scripture is not primarily given to you so that you can learn how to fight temptation. Not primarily. I know it's helpful, and I know it's often preached that way as if that's the intent of the author, but that's honestly not. The intent of the author is to show how Christ and his righteousness was upheld in temptation. But I would, pastorally, as we care for one another, bring ourselves back to this to say, please note how the second Adam, note how the one who is the author and finisher of your faith, notice how the one who is tempted as all points as you are yet without sin, notice how he responds to temptation. Make note of it. Be thankful for it. Imitate it. And trust that the very same power of the Spirit that could preserve him and his incarnate humanity may also preserve us, and that the statement is true, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you are not a Christian this morning, I just want to say to you that if you are not worshiping God and obeying him, you are worshiping Satan. And Satan is real. And Satan is on a mission. 
because he wants to make sure that those who have not yet put their faith in Christ never do. And I don't think he knows those who will and those who won't. I think he treats everybody the same. He doesn't discriminate. And I do believe that if you are not worshiping God because you have been regenerated and you understand the gospel and you believe, then you are part of the family of Satan. You are a son of the devil. You are a a child of disobedience. There are all these terms that are used to describe the unbeliever. And, and, and I don't say that to um, put you down or offend you. I just say that to bring that to your attention and to implore you and plead with you and make an appeal to you that today would be the day of salvation. May the Lord open up your eyes to that truth. And were you to think that I couldn't possibly become a Christian because I have done things that you wouldn't believe. I have sinned so bad. I've messed things up so bad. I would just remind you that the purpose of this text is to show you that the Father sent His Son to be perfect everywhere that you are imperfect, and that it's that righteousness that is given to you, and it is that righteousness given to you that qualifies you then to stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, according to Jude. May today be the day of salvation for you, and if you have ears to hear, hear. There's literally nothing at all that's more important right now than that. And, and I, I am not a, uh, that's, that's not superstition. It's not superstition to say that on a day like today when somebody is standing up here to herald the truth about Christ and the truth about Satan, that that very real person would not be at work here through his agency of demonic power and the forces of darkness and the weakness of the flesh to try to persuade any one of you who's not a Christian to simply bypass everything I just said. So may we even here who are in Christ take a moment to pray that God will be merciful to those in our midst who have not yet put their faith and trust in Christ. Verse 10, he was victorious over the devil. He says to him in verse 10, Be gone, Satan. You know, Christ has two natures. He has a human nature and he has a divine nature. And I want to say as as emphatically and as carefully and as clearly as I can, a human nature is not the same as a sin nature. A human nature means that he's human. He's truly man. And his divine nature, he is truly God. And he did not become less God to become man. It's not a giving up of any divine attribute. He was not reduced. He took on true humanity. And in his divine nature. He retains all that he is. And when he says to Satan, be gone, that is either as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, issuing a decree to creation, or it is as Son of Man, truly human, and in the anointing power of the Holy Spirit, 
declaring that Satan be gone. But even the sinless Son of God, in his human nature, is not here making a declaration against Satan and therefore suggesting to us that we have the power to bind Satan or send Satan away. I think you've got to be very careful not to import into your nature the certain specific capabilities that we see in the life and the ministry of the God-man. The reason why he had a human nature is because he had to die as a human for humans. The reason he didn't have a sin nature is because there was no sin in him. This goes all the way back to the beginning of Matthew. It was the seed of the woman that the Holy Spirit came upon in order that the second person of the Trinity may be born the Son of Man, born of woman, born under the law. And because he was a son of man, born under the law, and he obeyed the law perfectly, despite this most intense temptation, he could then lay down that sinless life as a substitute for all the sinful lives lived by everybody else. And because he had a divine nature, he was able then to retain all that is in him as God. And when he resurrected, you have a new resurrected body. You have the same perfect Son of God. And you have an example of what awaits all of those in the final day when we'll be made like him. He has a human nature, and he has a divine nature. He does not have a sin nature. So Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I will not worship you. I will not serve you. And he goes back again to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the section that we looked at a little bit earlier. And he draws attention back to that very chapter to say to Satan that there is absolutely nothing that he can do to make him worship him or serve him. In this regard, he is victorious over the devil. He is victorious over the devil because he can resist his temptation. He is victorious over the devil because he is obedient in every place that the first Adam failed. He takes every temptation that the devil brings, and the devil fails. He takes every success that the devil had, and he reverses it. And then he's victorious over the devil at the end because he fulfills the purpose of his coming, which is that he would crush the head of the serpent. He is victorious over sin and death and hell and the devil, over his temptations, over his successes, and even over his very person. And then finally, he's ministered to by angels. Then, verse 11, the devil left him, and behold, to get your attention, angels came and were ministering to him. I wish I could tell you what that meant. There's a lot of other sanctified speculation out there, as I've read commentaries and listen to sermons and read articles and there's a lot of people out there venturing a guess but we don't know exactly what this means 
I know that by ministering to him, it means to meet his needs. I, I know that obviously there was a multitude of angels who were loving and caring and serving and worshiping him. I know that with the devil's dismissal and with the faithfulness that he showed to his father and the standing firm in the test and the, and the living out all righteousness, uh, that there would have been no doubt an affirmation of him, much like at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Parents, can we try to draw a parallel? How quick we are to identify the sins and the failures in our children, but are we as quick to identify the obedience and the faithfulness of our children? This is my beloved son in whom I am very disappointed for what you just did. Is that offset enough with this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? You see, the father never had to say I'm disappointed, but the father says I'm well pleased in him. And I don't know if this was part of what was ministering to him, but the, the ministry that he has passed the test, the ministry that he has successfully stood under the temptation, the, the encouragement that you are being the perfect second Adam. And in no doubt, of course, we would be led to believe there must be some physical care as well, a ministry of food to him even in the wilderness. This text is not primarily about us, but this text does help us. And I'll conclude with a statement that comes from the book of Hebrews, and it reminds us of the person who Christ is in being the author and the completer, the perfecter of our faith. Beginning in verse 14, of Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these things, that was his human nature, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who are through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that means to be a substitute for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen? May we keep our eyes on our merciful Savior and high priest. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this majestic narrative and for everything that it entails, for deliberately giving up your own divine sense of privacy, your own right to conceal things from us and choosing to deliver to us through your inspired servants a true and faithful account of what it meant for the second Adam, the perfect son, to endure and bear up under and ultimately defeat not only the temptation but the tempter. I pray that we would be reminded of his power and of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit 
that would place our thoughts back on His righteousness and not our own, and that we have a merciful Father who is ready and willing to forgive. May we not become a stubborn, rebellious, or impenitent people. Make us quick to repent, quick to acknowledge our sin, quick to be restored. And by the power of the Spirit, bear fruit for your glory. For we pray these things in your name. Amen.